Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Here you go. Here you go. Mailbag. That's nothing personal word of the day. Hope everybody had a merry and safe Christmas. For those of you who celebrate, you may not be listening to this right now because it's Kwanzaa. Well, I appreciate all of the questions and we get questions on davidsampsonpodcast.com, on Twitter at David P. Sampson, even on Instagram at David P. Sampson. Thank you for all the engagement. Thanks for one heck of a year. We wanted to spend this week, give you a few mailbag episodes because during the regular show, we get to a question when we can answer a bunch of questions individually, directly, privately. And then we do mailbag episodes where we read your questions and answer. So without further ado, this number one question, I wanted to start with this because it is a question that's been asked not just of fans of the show, but of employees of the Marlins or the Expos where I was working for all those years. And I want to give you some insight. So Coca, here we go. Ho, ho, ho. Good morning, David. Good morning. Quick question. What goes into the decision-making process for choosing what specific nights organizations hold promotional giveaway nights like bobbleheads, hats, etc.? I assume there was always a method to the madness. Thanks. Every single year, there is a calendar that every team comes up with. And the calendar is based on sales. So let me take you back to June of a particular year. Hit refresh like Jesse Eisenberg in Social Network. Hit refresh, hit refresh, boom. Preliminary schedule, 2024. That comes to you from MLB in June of 2023. And you get to look at what your team schedule is the following season. You're still in the middle of the current season, but you get the schedule for the next season. Here is everything that happens once I get that email. Beth, my assistant, forward to the following people. One, the traveling secretary. Two, the head of stadium operations. Three, the VP of sales. Four, the VP of marketing. Five, the president of baseball operations. Now, why do all those people need to get the schedule? When you get your preliminary schedule, you see who your opponents are. You see what days you're playing the opponents, but there's no times on the schedule. So the first meeting that you do, this question is going to turn into a conversation about scheduling, Coca. If you're bored, just cut off the mailbag episode. So what you do is you speak to your baseball department and you go through the schedule and you say what days have to be 
afternoon games, according to the collective bargaining agreement. And that is when you're going home to an off day. That is when you have a plane trip over a certain number of hours. And then the baseball people take a look and say, hey, I'd love an afternoon game here because otherwise we'll get into the next city at that time. It's too late. And so the baseball people submit to me what their ideal is for afternoon games. That again is split into have to be, want to be. My view of wannabe afternoon games is I don't want a lot of afternoon games. There is a direct correlation between your in-game revenue, gate revenue, food, beverage, parking, merchandise. There's a direct correlation between game time and amount of revenue. Night games make more money than afternoon games. So the preference would always be to have as many night games as possible. Your TV partner would like as many night games as possible. Primetime night games, that's the thing. So the baseball department submits what they want for afternoon games. Then Claude Delorme, who is my head of stadium operations, ballpark operations, tells me, here's all the games that have to be afternoons. Let's talk about the ones that the baseball department wants to be afternoons. And the operations guy says, yeah, no problem. We'll do as many as you want. Then I talk to my CFO. The CFO goes through, well, that's a Cub game that they want to put in the afternoon because they're traveling. We don't have to do it. And that's going to cost you 300 grand. Call the baseball person and say, you know what? I think we're going to go a night game here. The baseball person calls me back and says, I think it'd be really good for competitiveness if we could do an afternoon game there. So there's push and pull. You decide on what games are going to be afternoon games. Then there's a conference call that happens between all of the operations people, traveling secretaries of all the 30 teams with MLB. And they go through later on that summer, all of the game times. And you trade back and forth with other teams. If you give me an afternoon game here, I'll take, I'll give you an afternoon game there. And the reason that happens is when you're on the road, you'd like to play an afternoon game on getaway day so you can get home or get to the next city. And the home team says, no, no, I'd rather play a night game. And so you say, how about a trade? We'll give you an afternoon game for that August game where you're here if you give us an afternoon game for that June game when we'll be there. So it's like horse trading that happens. Then sometime around August, you have your set schedule. It's not announced but you have your set schedule where you see who you're playing and when you're playing them. Then you speak to your marketing people and your salespeople, and you say to them, what can we do to push attendance for these following games? And what we do, and sometimes we would do this publicly, is you'd actually do tier pricing. This is before dynamic pricing. You all may remember this from years past where there'd be tier one games and tier two games. Like when the Yankees would come to Miami, that's a tier one game. When it's the Guardians, that's a tier four game. Although I love the Guardians. But you do it according to what you think your revenue will be for that particular game, which is based on what you think your attendance will be for that particular game. What the salespeople do is they say to the marketing people, come up with great ideas for a particular game, and then we'll go sell it. That's when we come up with season ticket plans or group ideas or theme nights. 
and giveaways. That's the marketing people. The marketing people say, I don't know if you know this, but Beanie Babies are really hot. And so we want to do a Beanie Baby for Player X. What do you think of that, David? I call up the baseball guy. Hey, is Player X going to be on the team next year? Well, if we're not good, we're going to move him by the deadline. If you're going to do anything to honor Player X, do it in the beginning of the season. Oh, that player is signed to a three-year deal. We're definitely keeping him. You can do a giveaway for him later in the season. Oh, you've got a good young player? No problem. Any time of year. So any of your veteran players or any of your players a, a year away from free agency or hitting free agency, you generally will do those giveaways that are associated with that particular player early in the season. So you've got your marketing people who give you ideas of whether it's Beanie Babies or Bobbleheads or any other knickknack that people would want. There are certain giveaways that are set in stone. For example, magnetic schedule. You give out a magnetic schedule the last weekend of the season prior so people can get all excited about next year's season. All-star posters. We reserve an all-star poster giveaway for the home game right after the all-star game of that particular season. The salespeople, their input is that they know from a group sales standpoint, if you do a Puerto Rican Heritage Night in Miami, that you can expect an extra 7,000 people to get. A Dominican Heritage Night, a Cuban Heritage Night, a Jewish Heritage Night. And what we do is we match the Heritage Nights or the theme nights with a team at a time on a day where we think we can make either a bad game good, a good game great, or a great game a sellout. So you're putting this whole puzzle together and you're thinking about when to calendar all of these things. And the reason why you have to do it so far in advance is that you're looking at the calendar. So for example, you're not gonna do Jewish Heritage Night if you have to have a game on the first day of Passover. Because on the first day of Passover, in theory, most people will be at a Seder, not at a game. If there is something else going on in your city where there is a huge convention of honoring Puerto Rican heritage, so you know there'll be extra number of people who could go to a game, you talk to your Chamber of Commerce, you talk to your Convention Visitors Bureau, and you choose that's a good weekend to add on to what people are already doing in our city. So you do it in a way where you're trying to coordinate everything from the giveaway to the heritage nights, to the theme nights, you're doing it all to sell. That's why you include the salespeople, the marketing people who are gonna give the ideas for the salespeople to sell. You try to appease the baseball people who really don't care too much about what you're doing on the sales and marketing side, even though they pretend to, they're much more focused on the baseball side. The traveling secretary needs to know what's happening in order to make flight reservations and hotel reservations, which are done well in advance for a traveling party as big as a baseball team. So all of these things come into play. And then when you've got the ideas and you match the giveaways for a player, you actually go to the player and say, here's what we're doing. You're having a bobblehead night. We want to show you the bobblehead. And the game will be July 23rd of next season. 
So there's a ton of communication that goes on. There's a ton of coordination, all with the hope that it works. And the definition of works is that you attain the budgeted number that you have for that particular game. Because on a granular level, when you get your schedule, the CFO and the people who work with him in finance are actually going game by game. They are budgeting what they expect your gross and net revenue to be. From that, they are doing financial projections. And from that, the owner is getting an idea of P&L and what the payroll can be. So everything is very much related. And that's the story. So that's the decision-making process. That's quite a process, isn't it? But you get used to it. You do it every single year. I did it 18 times. And some things work, some things don't. Some giveaways are amazing. Some are just okay. And then the final part. The final part is the name you see on the giveaway, sponsored by, brought to you by. Well, did you know that in corporate sales, which is all of the deals that are done when you walk into a ballpark and see a sign on the outfield, or you see any sort of advertisement anywhere, that's part of a corporate partnership that a company has with a team. Part of the deal of all corporate partnerships is if they give you $200,000 a year, they get one outfield wall sign, they get one giveaway, they get two box seats to every game, and they get one suite for use during the season for one game. You take the expense of those, you allocate it to that corporate partnership deal, and what you allocate in cost is less than what you're taking in from the corporate sponsor, and that's called profit. So what we do is we go to a corporate partner who we know we have to do a giveaway for because that's part of their deal, and we'll call them and say, well, we're doing a bobblehead on May the 30th, and we are looking at doing this player, and you're going to be the sponsor of that bobblehead. And therefore, we will be doing our part of the bargain where the contract says you have to have a giveaway. So there's so many layers of things that go on. And then before you know it, the year starts, the calendar's announced, and you're all buying your tickets, and you're focused on certain opponents or giveaways or theme nights or any which way you make your decision on how to spend your disposable income. Hopefully, what we came up with is what you want to buy. If that sounds familiar, that's like every other company or every other corner grocery store or corner retail store. They're trying to put things in certain places in the store in order for you to buy the stuff. Thank you for that question. All right, let's keep going. Dear David. Yes, thank you. Hi. I know you mentioned in a previous episode that when teams send new stadiums a survey to fans, it's an illusion of fan involvement in a stadium as the stadium will be built how the owner wants. Oh, this is so good. I was just curious. Do teams rely on the stadium season ticket holder seating pricing surveys when they're coming up with projections for actually stadium seating pricing? Or do organizations have their own internal numbers and are hoping to use the survey to bump up the stadium pricing? If the survey numbers show that fans want lower than projected numbers, does that actually change the numbers? Well, thank you very much for that question. Let me tell you how that goes. Part of the budgeting 
from the previous question, when we're matching opponents and days of the week and what we're expecting, we also put in as part of your revenue for that game, it's the number of people you expect times the amount of money they're paying per ticket. That's the average ticket price is the number of people who buy tickets, the total amount of money they spend, you divide it, and that's your average ticket price. If you sell out your outfield at $10 or do those special $1 giveaways, I can get 30,000 people into a ballpark, each paying a dollar and announce attendance of 30,000. Or I could charge $100. And then it only matters if 3,000 people come and it's the same amount of money. So how do you discuss or figure out how much tickets should be? There are companies that you can hire, and we did this mostly internally, but sometimes would hire a consultant, where they go through your inventory and they work to help price your inventory, not according to prices in other cities, but according to other entertainment options in your city. How much does it cost to do X or do Y? What do the other sports teams in your city charge? What is the capacity of those stadiums? How far away from the action are they? How often are the games? We have 81 home games. That's 10 times as many games as the Dolphins have. Now you could argue the Dolphins do two home preseason games, so they have 10 games. And every other year they have nine regular season games, so that could be 11 games. So we're anywhere between eight and 10 times more. So if you're paying $20 for a ticket to go to a Marlins game, that same person should be willing to spend $200 to go to a Dolphins game because of the scarcity based on a 10 times multiple. But what we have found is it doesn't really correlate that way. The person who's spending $20 to go to a baseball game would never be in the market to spend $200 to go to a football game. So how then do we come up with prices? Well, the oldest economic principle that ever existed is the, is the principle of supply and demand. What do we do to increase demand, therefore decreasing supply, therefore putting pressure on prices to go up? That pressure normally manifests itself in the secondary market. How often have you gone on Ticketmaster or gone on StubHub and you want to buy a ticket to an event and the face of the ticket is X and they're charging you X plus Y. And if you're willing to take the risk, you can wait till you're in the parking lot and maybe the price will go down below X as the game time approaches. Though if you're flying in for the game or you've got, you're taking your family to a game or your clients or your friends, you may not want to take the chance of not getting the tickets you want in the place you want, so you want to buy the tickets in advance. The more people who want to do that and do it often, those are called season ticket holders. The people who go to one-off games or two-off games who are willing to wait to the end because they're looking for the cheapest ticket, they're going to buy the cheapest ticket. So when you are marketing to people a baseball game, you are not marketing to one demographic. You're marketing to those who are very price sensitive all the way to those who have no price sensitivity at all. They want to be in a specific seat at a specific time. What we have found over the years in baseball 
is that more and more people have less and less interest of being full season ticket holders. We talked earlier this year about the Arizona Diamondbacks and the pass they were doing, where for $299, you get an outfield seat to every game you want to go to every game of the season. You can go to all 81 games, no location guaranteed. That is what baseball teams do to try to handle the oversupply. 81 games with 40,000 capacity, that's 3.2 million tickets sold. The Dolphins have never sold 3.2 million tickets. They couldn't sell 3.2 million tickets. No football team could. Even with 100,000 capacity, with 10 home games, do the math. That's a million people. That's why their prices are higher. But how do we find 3 million individuals to go to a baseball game? That's when tiered pricing happened with the big games versus the games against opponents, not so great. But all of that changed with something called dynamic pricing. Dynamic pricing is real world right now, what tickets should go for based on the demand and the supply of that second. And then tomorrow it changes. In 10 minutes, it changes because the supply demand curve is always moving. So you're asking me how we do prices. And the answer is today, it is all done analytically. So specifically surveys. I like this topic, Coca. Can we talk about surveys? We did a survey going into the new ballpark. Tell us what you want to see in the new stadium. Tell us what you'd love. Here's a survey. Tell me that you'd be willing to go visit Anaheim in June. What would it take? Here's a survey. There's a team moving to Vegas. Are you likely, somewhat likely, less likely, a little likely, totally unlikely, or no doubt about it that you want to go see the Las Vegas A's? Those surveys in general are used by people with a big enough sample size to give them an indication so they can be properly on the supply demand curve. Here's the problem. When you make decisions based on surveys of people saying what they may do, what they may not do, what they're likely to do, what they're somewhat likely to do, what they never will consider doing, or what they'll do no matter what, even if they have a family member sick at home, and you make your decisions based on that, you're going to lose. All the surveys that you get, please press two after this call to take a quick survey about our customer service. Did you like dealing with Dawn or did you not? Please take a quick four question survey about your experience on this plane. Every time you buy something online, could you take a survey, please? Did you find the checkout experience good? It's like a Petri dish of complaints. Are there things that we do according to survey results? News alert, no. What we do is we have people who work for us who use our systems. If you wanna know what your call center's like, don't count on someone who's not within your company. If Delta wants to know their customer service, Delta employees, an entire department, can spend time anonymously calling up the 1-800-DELTA number having an experience of making a reservation, changing a reservation, having people who work for a clothing company, call that clothing company. B 
be a part of the customer service experience. Then you go to your bosses and you say, this is what happened. We would do that. And from there, changes are made. Why? Because I have zero belief, and this may make me sound so cynical, Coca, but I have zero belief or faith that the information I'm getting from these surveys is what I call actionable information. Actionable information is data that I use to inform future decisions. When there's no emotion involved, it's called analytics. The reason why analytics is so prevalent in sports, in business, is that numbers don't lie. Things are what they are. You can hope they're different, but they are what they are. And then you can tweak what you do and see if that impacts what is. And if it does, is it positive or is it negative? So when you are making pricing decisions or giveaway decisions or apparel decisions, the ultimate vote comes from you, the consumer. Are you buying stuff or are you not? Are you engaged in the product? Not because you have brand affinity. I love the heat. So I'm going to take a carnival cruise. Give me a break. The way Mickey Harrison knows whether people who love the heat love carnival is if they go on cruises. How do you find out if they go on cruises? The only part of a survey that I always love and that I'll always answer as a consumer, why are you here? How have you heard of us? What did we do that enabled you to want to spend money with us? Was it a TikTok ad, an Instagram ad? Was it an ad at the Heat Arena that you said, oh, Carnival Cruise, what a good idea. Or you go to the Pepsi Center and you say, you know what? I've always had Coke, but now I'm going to have Pepsi. It's hogwash. There are people who like using products that they see celebrities using. There are people who like using products that sponsor certain people or certain things because it makes them feel like they're a part of it. All of that is true, but for it to be actionable, you have to do it and you have to do it when you weren't going to do it before or you haven't done it before. So surveys, pricing, not really. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. Hello. I'm a lifelong Clevelander. Oh, no. I didn't mean to say the Guardians are a tier 14. They're not. I love the Guardians. As a matter of fact, if we were reliving 1997, the Guardians would become a tier one team because we beat the Guardians in the World Series. I wasn't there, but the team did. Hello. I'm a lifelong Clevelander and a fan of your show. I appreciate that. I was curious if you had any opinions on what the Guardians are doing with Progressive Field. They are actively removing upper deck seats and adding local beer gardens. Is this just a way to frame that they will never reach the numbers that we reached in the 90s as far as attendance goes? So they're hiding the fact they can't sell out a stadium? 
Do you think there's a chance they relocate whenever the Dolan family decides to sell? Well, that's a couple different questions there. Let me start with the first part of that. If we've learned anything in the first 27 minutes of this mailbag post-Christmas episode, thank you very much for downloading, subscribing, and all the other things. By the way, Coca, do we take breaks when we do a mailbag episode? Maybe we'll go to break right after this question. But from the previous questions, what we have informed you and what I've tried to explain is that all decisions are made based on supply and demand. Do you remember the Colorado Rockies when they first moved to Coors Field? They moved to Coors Field having played the first number of seasons at Mile High Stadium where the Broncos played. The Rockies were drawing scores of people per game. Their attendance was amazing. So when Coors Field opened, they opened with this huge capacity. And then as the years went on and the seats went empty, they said to themselves, this makes no sense. It's a bad look when there's empty seats. How about buying a $25,000 tarp and we'll tarp the seats and sell an ad for it? Well, that's not really a perfect use of that space. How about if we completely change the capacity of Coors Field and we repurpose areas? Repurposing areas. It's something that is happening across all of baseball with facilities that were built too large when there was this irrational exuberance about what attendance would be. And now they're cutting capacity by telling you that what you really want, because they read all the surveys, is you want places to congregate. You want places where you don't have to necessarily sit down or watch the game, but you're going to hang out with people. Singles nights. Seeking arrangements nights. Do you know why Progressive Field is changing its capacity? Of course, it's because the demand for those tickets has disappeared. And for the postseason, when you want as much demand as possible, the juice is not worth the squeeze. What you do is you lower the capacity and then you increase the price. Back to supply demand. You increase the price for those games like playoff games. Which is why when Oakland and Tampa are looking at their new stadiums, their capacities are smaller. In Oakland's case in Las Vegas, it's because the parcel is so small. But in general, you're trying to lower capacity so you can have better demand. Now, local beer gardens. What's the benefit of that? I want to tell a quick story about how that all works with your concessionaire. When you hire a concessionaire and you're building a new ballpark, the overwhelming majority of teams do what we did so I can't take credit for it. You go through an RFP, a request for proposal from all the different concession companies. They pitch you on why they're the best concessionaire for your stadium. They tell you why they're really good in the premium areas and why they're really good at selling hot dogs and popcorn in the upper deck. And then you say to them, we appreciate that. We'd love to do a tasting. Introduce me to your chefs. Introduce me to how you bring people in to man, to, to staff the stands. But we would like you to give us $10 million up front to pay for the concession build out in the new stadium, because then that doesn't have to come out of the public money or the private money. It can come out of your pocket. And the concessionaire says, we're happy to give you $10 million up front to build out the concession, but it's going to impact your future percentage that you get paid when you sell a hot dog or popcorn. 
and the team says, no problem, I'd rather give up a percentage later to not have to borrow more money or come up with more money now. Does that sound familiar? It's the inability to come up with money now, so you mortgage the future and you worry about it later, like deferred comp or like a mortgage. We all do it. We all borrow from later to get what we want now. The famous installment plans, layaway plans. Have you ever seen a commercial? Buy this couch, no payments till 2025. Ever read the fine print? The fine print says that in 2025, you're paying a hell of a lot more for that couch, mattress Mac notwithstanding, than you're paying if you had just been able to buy the couch today. But people want a couch. And the people who sell the couch want the couch off their floor, out of their inventory, and then they have expected revenue later for couches they sold now. It's like a continuing conveyor belt of matching sales to inventory. So when you are offered something that seems too good to be true, A, it most likely is, but B, like with any TV deal, when a team gets a huge amount of money in an upfront payment, you're losing money on a year-by-year -year basis when you would have gotten X, and instead you're getting X minus Y. Coincidentally, Y equals the amount of the upfront payment you got. So the answer is that concessionaires will give you money, and then they'll work with you because they've got, as part of being a concessionaire, deals with local breweries. They've got the ability to do a deal where they bring in a local brewery. They get a percentage of the brewery sales. The brewer is happy because they're getting exposure inside a ballpark. And they go to the team and say, hey, see all that empty space? Why don't we help you build that out? We'll pay for that. We'll make it a beer garden. We'll give you a small percentage of beers sold. And you've got another thing to sell to your customers in order to help demand. It all goes back, back to supply and demand. So I think that is part of the reason why they're doing it, to say the least. All right, do we go to break, Coca? I can't remember what you're telling me. I can't remember if you're telling me anything. And if we're not going to break, then I'm just going to go on to the next question. Okay. Hi, David. Great show. Thank you. Love hearing stories from behind the scenes. That's what nothing personal is. We had to write a uh, thumbnail when we were joining Metalark and we were licensing our show to Metalark. And uh, Levitard said, give me your elevator pitch. What is nothing personal? Well, thanks, Dan, for listening all the time. But here's what nothing personal is. It is a look behind the scenes, behind the curtain, inside the kimono. Here's what's really going on. What people are really trying to say when they're saying something totally different. We do business, sports, sports business, culture, entertainment, politics, much to the chagrin of some people. On Levitard's show, oh, funny. We were talking about Levitard. On Levitard's show, Stu Gotts gave his list of top five athletes that he would want to take on a weekend vacation. Who are yours? Well, what were the rules of that? Were they alive? Could they be dead? I'm going to say this. I'm going to do alive. And the reason I'm going to do alive is that I want it to be something that could actually happen. Who would you like to have dinner with alive or dead? Abraham Lincoln. Well, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. 
As far as I know, my best chance at a dead guy is Walt Disney. And frankly, we'd have to thaw him out first. And it wouldn't be great conversation. So let's go with the top five athletes I would want to take on a weekend vacation. Number five, Patrick Ewing. Patrick Ewing was and is my favorite all-time Nick. He is someone who I would just want to sit around, talk about those great Nick teams of the 90s, how horrible it is that we didn't win a world championship. And I would love to just be able, without media, without press, without social media, have an opportunity to just sit with him and converse. Patrick Ewing, number five. Number four someone who I have gone on a weekend vacation with. And the reason I put him at number four is I want to communicate with you how amazing it can actually be if you get to take a weekend vacation with an athlete. I went on a weekend vacation with Jeff Conine and we had a blast and it led to many other weekend vacations, which led to a friendship, which started with the trade to the Marlins in the middle of the 03 season. The reason why he's on my list at number four is maybe to be number one if I took weekend vacations with everyone and realized that I had the most fun with him, but the top three are people I haven't gone on weekend vacation with and really want to. So Conine, Nina, you're number four. I mean, to me, you're always number one, you know that. But in this list, you're number four. Number three, I would like, if possible, to take a weekend vacation with Bill Belichick. And the reason you said it has to be athletes, but the reason I want to take a weekend vacation with Bill Belichick is that A, I want to talk about the Giants when he won a Super Bowl as coordinator, defensive coordinator. Then I want to talk about his time with the Patriots, his time with Tom Brady. I want to talk about all the different scandals. I want to hear from him about greatness and how much he thinks about the Brady versus Belichick. Is he only as good as Brady was? Did he make Brady who he is? What is his reason for being grumpy all the time? Bill Belichick, would you like to go away with me? You're number three. Number two, it's another baseball player. I would like to take a weekend vacation with Ichiro. I've known Ichiro a long time. We've never gone on vacation together. The time I've spent with him has been absolutely fantastic. We've spent time in Japan. We've spent time in the States. Look at me, Louis. But whenever I'm with him, unless it's inside the clubhouse, there's always distractions. There's always things going on. There's always people recognizing him, and he's so nice and so good that it just leads to a lack of continuity in a conversation or an ability to actually get through a full conversation. So I'd like to go away for a weekend with Ichiro where there's no one else around and we can talk about his career, talk about what it's like to be the Beatles of Japan and have him able to be relaxed. Ichiro, you would be, what? wait, what number was that? That should have been two. Ichiro, two. The number one athlete I want to take on a vacation I think this may be shocking to some people, but I'm going to tell you why it shouldn't be. Because if you know me, do you all know what my favorite sport is and why? My favorite sport has always been basketball. And basketball, I always wanted to be the point guard for the Knicks. And it was rough being as short as I am, knowing that I couldn't even make my varsity basketball team. But I was all in on the NBA. 
I just, the Knicks were my life. The passion I had for the Knicks, I would set my schedule around Knicks games. I wouldn't go out if the Knicks were on the road. The Knicks were home. I wanted to go to the games. The number one person who I want to take on a weekend vacation is Bill Bradley. And the reason Bill Bradley is number one is A, he's a Nick. B, he was a senator. C, brilliant. And D, he would have the ability to do things that I love. One, teach me. I would be doing lots of listening. There's a pretty good theme here among my top five. Some are fun, some are educational. I like a mix. So I'm gonna spend five weekends in a year. I wanna both have fun and learn. And I believe the opportunity to be around Bill Bradley, to learn. I would have given you a politician at the number one slot if you hadn't said athlete. So I wanted to get a politician and an athlete. Bill Bradley is the best example. There've been a bunch of athlete politicians, but Bill Bradley to me, that would be someone where I would just be in jaw dropping awe were I to be able to spend a weekend with him. And those are my top five athletes I'd like to take on a weekend vacation. Okay, here we go. Ready? Hi, David. Hi. I've been to over 20 major league ballparks and guaranteed rate field where the White Sox play is the only one I've been to that does not allow you to even walk in the lower level concourse if you don't buy a ticket there. They only let you go to the upper concourse could you help me understand the decision on this? I get not wanting fans to try and sneak down, but as a fan, it's an incredibly frustrating experience. Less, you mean fewer, food options, cannot explore the entire ballpark. Do you know why they are the only team that does this? And was this something you considered at Marlins Park? News alert, everybody does it. Every single stadium, except Sometimes ushers, security people, aren't paying attention, aren't trained, and don't really care. As the president of a team, I care greatly. And that may make me sound callous, but let me explain. When you board an airplane and you have seat 69F, when you board through the front boarding door, you cannot plop yourself in seat 2A. You're in coach. You can't fly in first class. Why? Because the people who fly in first class have paid for that right. They've paid for that seat through miles, cash, a giveaway from their company, whatever the case is. How do you explain value without consequence? That's the concept I wanted to mention in answering this question. Value without consequence. What's the value of buying a courtside seat if I can buy an upper deck seat, upper concourse, and then go sit courtside? I see that open seat, I'm gonna go grab it. Why would anyone buy a lower concourse seat at a higher price point if they have no protection from people coming from the upper concourse to sit right next to them, except they paid 10 bucks and you paid 200 bucks? How would you feel about that? Are you going to say you wouldn't care? Hey, it's an open seat. Might as well fill it. No problem. It's not just the White Sox. And I would very much like to say that Jerry Reinsdorf created this and that he enforces this, but it's not the case. 
We did that at Marlins Park. The San Francisco Giants do it at Pac Bell, AT&T, whatever it's called now. I've never been to a stadium, both pre-sports career and post-sports career. I've never been to any stadium where they don't follow those exact rules. Early new stadiums that were built, like Guaranteed Rate Field, even San Francisco was one of the early stadia. They built it in a way that you don't have access to the field in a 360-degree way. They built it in a way that makes it tough to navigate the different areas. The newer stadiums are much easier to navigate. Even Marlins Park, which is now over 10 years old, you can walk around the entire lower concourse. You're allowed to walk the concourse anywhere you want, but you can't take a seat. And you can access the field with your eyes from anywhere on the concourse, but you can't take a seat. So the encouraging thing was if people want to buy at a low price to get in, your get-in price, no problem. But then we're going to do things to have you spend some money, but we're not going to let you sit next to someone and show off the fact that you're there for no reason. And this comes up all the time. John Henry was famous in Florida. Hey, we're at Pro Player Stadium. All you people in the upper deck, come on down and sit with me. So when I started in Florida after John Henry left in 2002 and I changed that, I looked like the devil, the villain, except to the people who actually bought the premium seats who said, thank God. And it's not that they're prejudiced or they don't want the riffraff around. It's they want value and not value without consequence. So when you are going about your life and all the things that you do, keep that little phrase in mind, the value without consequence, and tell me, get on my Twitter, David P. Sampson, right now, I'll see it. Tell me what scenarios you operate where you can get value without consequence. Let me know. Well, I appreciate it. I can't believe we're through a full mailbag already. We'll do a couple. I like doing mailbags. Keep those questions coming. Remember, it's just business. Happy Kwanzaa. Be safe. This is nothing personal. 